Welcome to the UC Berkeley Data Science Education Podcast. We're happy you're listening in today. In this space, you'll hear from a variety of distinguished data science educators and professionals. The individuals we'll speak with are diverse in experience and perspective, but share the common goal of shaping the future of data science education. Our idea is to have some informal conversations with the goal of creating community and let people hear from practitioners in this growing new field. My name is Eric Van Dusen from Data Science Undergraduate Studies in the Division of Computing, Data Science, and Society at UC Berkeley, and I'll be leading our conversation today. And my name is Harry Lee, also from Data Science Undergraduate Studies. I'm working as an intern with the division's external pedagogy team, and I'll be helping out today too. Today we have David Brockman from the Political Science Department. Uh, David, could you give us a brief introduction to yourself and what you're currently working on? Sure. So my name is David Brockman. I'm an associate professor of political science here at Cal. Um, In my research life, um, I study uh, public opinion, uh, political representation, and political campaigns in the United States. Um, It's been a very interesting few years to study all of that. uh, I recently completed a study um, that made the rounds a little bit uh, where we uh, did a randomized controlled trial where we paid uh, Fox News viewers to watch CNN for a month. Um, and I'm working on a bunch of other um, fun studies um, sort of, of with that sort of flavor of trying to do real world. I call them field, we call them field experiments in political science um, where we try to understand the effects of real world treatments on, in my case, it's usually people's kind of attitudes or, or political behaviors. Awesome. Well, one thing I want to ask you about today is uh, you put a lot of energy into redesigning Political Science 3, which is almost like an introduction to data science within like four political science majors. Uh, Could you explain the changes you implemented to that class and maybe sort of the rationale behind those? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started at Berkeley a couple years ago, and uh, there's a our political science major has only one class that is actually required for all political science majors to take, no matter what your interests are. So for those of you who are not political scientists, um, uh, you might be aware that uh, political science is a very broad field. So it includes everything from political theory and kind of philosophy. Um, You know, you're reading Locke and Kant and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Everything to um, the international relations uh, where you're thinking about war and treaties between nations. Then you have comparative politics, um, uh, some of which really specializes in understanding the politics of particular areas, some of which is about, you know, broad questions like when do democracies, you know, revert back to dictatorships, things like this. And then my, my area or subfield, we call it is American politics. Um, where we study, again, even within American politics, there's, there's a broad range, everything from understanding Congress to the bureaucracy to, in my case, you know, public opinion and voters. Um, so, so political science is a very broad uh, discipline. Um, I think it, we're, we're one of the largest departments at Berkeley. Uh, and our students are, are very heterogeneous and have these very heterogeneous interests. Um, but the one class they all have to take is PS3, um, which is our required um, kind of statistical um, and generally quantitative methods class. And um, I think, uh, so uh, coming into this, um, the, the, I was kind of aware and, and I actually spoke with you, Eric, um, a fair amount and others around campus, um, when I first arrived at Berkeley to kind of understand the general campus context. And, you know, part of what became clear to me is that here at Berkeley, there is, um, just a, a huge movement across the university to, um, try to equip, um, more of our undergrads with, uh, data science skills. And that meant that, you know, unlike 10 or 20 years ago, 
um, if we could basically, uh, and, and I should also say, um, in parallel, like within my field of political science, um, you know, there's always been a, a really big role of, of data in political science. Um, but I think there's really over the last 10 or 20 years been just an incredible acceleration in um, how sophisticated a lot of the techniques people are using. Um, I mean, frankly, the kind of work that I do is, is not all that all that statistically sophisticated. When you do a field experiment, mainly what you're doing is a difference in means, you know, sometimes, you know, residualizing um, with control variables, but, but sometimes with cluster standard errors, but it's pretty straightforward. But I mean, there's a lot of techniques that in order to understand, you know, the articles that you're reading in political science classes, like you need to, you need to understand in a way that might not have been true um, even 20 years ago. So um, I, I think I sort of noticed, you know, hey, it means maybe there's this opportunity for this class to um, sort of both prepare students to, if they want, um, do sort of more data science kind of classes across campus and be a little bit of a springboard for them, uh, as well as just better prepare them to do other classes within our major. Um, and so this, the, the last thing I'll say before I, before I shut up and let you ask your next question is I think the, the broader context, the other broader context here was that um, Berkeley in general um, is, our, our political science major is um, very diverse in terms of class, in terms of race and ethnicity. And I think there's a big push across political science as a discipline to try to diversify um, the professorate. And in practice, in order to get into a good PhD program so that you can become a professor, um, you need to um, have some training in quantitative methods um, as, as an undergrad. Maybe not a lot, but I think in practice, it, it's that's really helpful so that you can do a little bit of your own research, RA with professors, et cetera. Um, and uh, historically, actually, Berkeley had not, I, I think, had, hadn't been taking advantage enough of this huge pool of un undergraduates we have to try to prepare them for graduate study and send them to, to, to do a PhD, um, either in political science or, or in other fields, frankly. And I think part of the reason for that is that um, traditionally undergrads had waited to take PS3 until the very last semester or two they were here. And then they, we didn't have any follow-on classes for them to do anything with. So if you were an undergrad, you were like, why take PS3 now? It's this requirement. It doesn't let me do anything at Cal. And so I, I was part of our department's strategic planning committee uh, right when I joined. And one of the kind of ideas that, that, that I sort of proposed and we discussed and, and, and passed as our part of our department's strategic plan was to try to get these undergrads to take PS3 on average earlier in their time here and then build kind of follow-on classes. So there's a kind of broader vision within our department. Um, sorry, my answer is not very organized, but there's a bit of broader um, vision within our department to not just like prepare students for you know life and across campus, but actually say, hey, if we wanna be sending people to do graduate study or certain kinds of careers within politics or within policy, um, it'd be nice if we didn't just have this one class, but if for the you know 10 or 20% of students, which for us means still a very large group <laughs> of students, if we could prepare them kind of earlier on, say sophomore or junior year, um, taking this class, laying a foundation, and then say, hey, take this early because then there's these follow-on classes you can do, um, then our thought is that would really help in terms of taking the, the subset of our majors who would be interested in more data science and, and you know, giving them that, that content to prepare them for um, you know, their different careers, et cetera. So, in our department right now, there's there's an effort we have to, it's just like my, my work with PS3 is one part of it, which is just teaching it a lot so we can kind of work through the demand and teach it earlier. So I've, I taught it um, twice this year. So I've been like teaching an overload in order to, to, to kind of work through all the demand of students. Um, and we have colleagues teaching it. So we're gonna basically offer it every semester, which is great. Um, and then uh, just, 
in addition, the, the last thing, and I guess this is the, the meat of what we'll get to, is um, altering the content so that um, I think before PS3, I think the, the content was great, but it was um, it was sort of much more theoretical. It's like, okay, if you're um, if if you were um, you know doing a statistical test, like here's how you interpret all the numbers and, and things like this. Um, whereas um, I had sort of that content, but as well added a lot more kind of coding and hands-on. Okay, you're actually gonna not just like. I'm not going to tell you someone did a statistical test, but like you're going to download the data and do it. And we'll talk more about how the class works in a minute. But the 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 basic backstory there was, and, and motivation was prepare students such that if they're interested, they can then take a follow-on class that assumes, okay, you know a little bit of R, you know what a t-statistic is, you can kind of load a data set. And so now um, my colleagues are kind of working on this, found, based off this foundation that we're trying to set in PS3, such that there can be follow-on classes that have PS3 as a prerequisite and say, hey, if you wanna, so, so for example, we have a, a new faculty member who I was on the hiring committee to hire and I'm very happy that we have her, named Stephanie Zonsign, who's planning to teach a class um, next spring uh, after she joins us uh, about data and migration. Um, and so that's a class um, which is kind of a more substantively oriented class, which is about kind of immigration and migration, which is her specialty. But she's also a very sophisticated scholar who uses a lot of advanced data science techniques in her research. And so that's an example of a class where if you've taken PS3 or our other class that we also added, PS88, which is our data eight connector, which satisfies the same requirement. Um, you can then take her class and kind of continue where you left off in the context of this particular research. We also have um, another um, uh, new faculty member, member joining us next year named Kirk Bansack, who I was also on a different hiring committee to hire, and I'm also very happy is joining us, um, who's planning to teach a class, um, which is a more methods focused class about um, kind of intro to machine learning for social scientists. So for our majors who are more interested in that, they'll have that option. And so the idea is that um, by doing PS3 this way, which you know we'll, we'll get to in a moment, um, preparing students to kind of know a little bit of R, understand the basics, do it earlier on in their time, they'd be able to not just take advantage of then all the different um, uh, offerings across the university, but also um, some of the offerings uh, within our department that we're going to offer. And so it kind of was a chicken and egg problem where it never made sense to offer these advanced courses because students took PS3 at the very end. So like there'd be no students prepared for it. On the other hand, students wouldn't take PS3 earlier because why would you? And so we're trying to solve that chicken and egg problem. And and um, I think we're, we're not done, but we're kind of on the path. And I'm very happy about that. That's awesome. It's a really great overview. Um, you know, so I want to set the stage for the listener. You know, this is one of the top majors at UC Berkeley. It's a really big major. And this PSC3 class is a really big class, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, so what, what's the number of people in the class? Um, so I have around 330 people um, uh, last semester and this semester. So I've taught, you know, basically it ends up being nearly 700 students this, this, this academic year in this class. Right. So huge class, huge major, really trying to get the skill set of, of being able to do statistics to this broad population, lots of different types of people in the major. Um, Who I'll, I'll just, sorry to interject, many of whom, frankly, major in political science precisely because they do not want to touch numbers. And they're like, I mean, somewhat correctly, but mostly incorrectly, they're like, oh, well, this is the social science major I can do before I go to law school that won't require me to like touch you know, math, essentially. 
I'm glad you said that. Anyways, uh, you know, one of my understandings of your innovation was to use kind of a flipped classroom approach and sort of a frequent touching of a little bit of code. So students come into class, there's a mini notebook, there's a few, two, three lines of code. There's do it by yourself, do it in a group, discuss it. Um, I was wondering if you could just sort of discuss your implementation of that approach. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. And so, so the, the class was taught in a very non-traditional way in, in, in a few respects, but um, I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And, um, you know, yesterday was actually our last class and I had like a line of students just one after another telling, like thanking me for, for, for setting up the class this way. So I'm, I'm really happy with it. Um, the idea for this actually came from a colleague of mine at, at Duke named uh, Nick Carnes, who I'm, I'm really grateful for kind of giving me this advice. Um, and he doesn't teach a methods class. He teaches a, just a, a totally different class. But um, the, the paradigm um, that, that he uses and, and that I use um, is called team-based learning is, is the approach. Um, the, the way that I'm implementing it is not like exactly the most orthodox way of doing it um, because of some technological constraints. But but the basic idea is this team-based learning idea. So, so I don't want to claim credit for it. Um, I'm just kind of implementing, standing on the shoulders of giants here. Um, the, the basic idea and the way I implement it is that the, the life of a student in, in a week of the class is this. Um, so we have class Tuesday and Thursday evenings, and uh, what the students do is before class on Tuesday, um, they have a video from me, um, which is usually between 20 and 35 minutes or so, depending on the week, uh, where uh, I will, I've recorded a video in advance, they have to watch before class, where what I've done is I have programmed up a Jupyter Notebook. I'm going to assume your, do your listeners know what that is? Should I explain what a Jupyter Notebook sure, is? Sure, go for it. No. Yeah. So, so a Jupyter Notebook, um, that, this, is the, this is the piece that departs very much from team-based learning, which does not depend on Jupyter Notebooks, but it's the, the stats part. So a Jupyter Notebook, um, you, you'll probably be able to explain it better than I can, but it's essentially um, uh, a tool where students can click a web URL and then pop into a web page that has like interspersed uh, text and code. And when you run the code, it's just as if you're, and you can get the, it, it, within the page, you get the, um, you get the output of the code. And so it's really handy for both lectures and also for assignments because you can have some text where you're explaining things to people. You can have figures, tables, whatever. And then there'll be a code block where it says, okay, in this code block, like do, do this. Um, and so what I, I would do in my lectures is, um, uh, what I would do in my lectures is do a screen recording of me going through a Jupyter notebook that I had written um, that would introduce some concepts. So for example, um, there was uh, one session where we talked about standard errors. And so I would say, okay, what is a standard error? And I walked through it in the context of an experiment. And if you re-randomize data, like how you'd expect under the sharp null, there to be differences between treatment and control um, of a certain size, even if there's no effect because of the, um, the noise introduced by randomization. And so I would I went through like simulations and a formula and all this stuff. And I could go through that all in Jupyter Notebooks. And the video would just be me screen sharing. And they, can, they also have a link to the Jupyter Notebook. So they also can... Um, they can also go through it themselves as I'm talking or before I'm talking or whatever. So if you're a student, you know, before you get to class Tuesday, you've got to watch that video and understand it. And the reason why is that when you show up to class on Tuesday, uh, I'm not lecturing in class. Um, there is an assignment that you have to start doing as soon as you get to class. Um, and it's a, it's a short little assignment, um, these individual in-class assignments where there's a, another Jupyter notebook 
that uses um, what they learned in that lecture, as well as like building on, because all this stuff is cumulative, like what they learned in previous weeks, um, where they have to, uh, basically they sit down, they open their laptops, right when the class starts, the notebook is available, they click into it, and then they have to start answering questions. Um, some of the questions might be multiple choice, like, uh, and more conceptual. Some of them are coding questions. So, you know, compute the standard error. So, you know, the standard error lecture, the first thing might be, uh, read in this data set. Second thing might be subset to this subset. Third thing might be um, compute uh, uh, the um, estimated treatment effect. The fourth thing might be, okay, which of these numbers is the standard error in this in this output from this statistical package that I told you to use? And the fifth question might be, okay, what does the standard error mean? And then there's a multiple choice question. So that would be kind of a standard um, in-class assignment for Tuesday. And the way it works is they first have, um, depends on the assignment, how long it is, usually um, about 25 minutes to do, to do that on their own. Um, then they switch and they uh, are assigned to groups and they redo the same exact assignment in their groups. Um, and so um, usually you, I give them about five minutes less because they've already kind of thought about it. Um, but I think this is a great part of the paradigm because essentially you, you, I, my read of the research on um, how you get people to learn things is that one of the best way to get people to actually retain content is to explain it to somebody else. And so what you have is all of these groups where people are debating and explaining the concepts to each other. Um, and that I think the research shows is just like a great way to get people to actually retain the information. And they also teach each other because, so, um, the idea is uh, if, if I'm a student, I've already submitted my individual assignment, now I'm working on the group assignment, and then I'd say, oh, okay, obviously the answer to question number two is this. And then you, Eric, might say, oh, actually, I didn't, I didn't put that answer, I put a different answer, and then we have to talk about why and et cetera. Um, and then they turn in that assignment, and then the last third of class is me going through the right answers, explaining why they're the right answers, uh, and um, answering and answering questions. And it really just keeps up, you know, energy in the energy level in the class really high. Um, you know, the students, right, um, they, they see the answers right away. So they want to know, like, did I get the answer right or not? That rapid feedback, I think, is also really helpful for them because... Which is auto-grading. There's something that's showing them right away whether they... So here, yes, yeah, so I'll get to that in one second. So the, the rapid feedback, I mean, is just the in, um, in class, I'm going through the right answers, like right there. And so if they understood a concept wrong, they can be like immediately corrected and understand, oh, like here's why I understood it wrong or ask a question. So I think that kind of rapid feedback is, is really valuable. Um, two other features of this that, that, that I'll mention that, that are really cool. So one is one you just alluded to, which is um, from the instructor side, um, there's this great technology stack um, that we use called Otter, um, which is uh, built by a guy named Chris Piles. Um, it's just an amazing piece of software that essentially allows us to um, integrate auto-grading into Jupyter Notebooks. So I have 330 students in my class. Each of them are answering five questions. You know, you do the math, that's like a lot of grading. The nice thing is any closed-ended questions like that um, can be auto-graded using this Otter package, um, and it's really, really smooth. So the way it works technologically is um, students upload a, um, they upload their submission from Jupyter Notebooks into Gradescope. So from the student side, they basically hit a button, they download their notebook, then they go to Gradescope, they just drag and drop, they upload their notebook, and then on the Gradescope side, in like five minutes or something, it auto-grades their notebook. And then on my end, all I have to do is click a button to release their grades. And I, all I have to do is click another button and it pushes their grades over to um, B Courses, which is our implementation of, of Canvas here at Berkeley. 
So it makes grading super easy and super fast. And so for the students, you know, they're getting their grades right away. Another feature of that, which is kind of nice. Um, and so the, the Thursday classes are, are slightly different. Um, and the Thursday classes, instead of having one individual assignment and then one group assignment, they just have one group assignment uh, and it'll include open-ended questions. And so the idea is that the Thursday class usually has like a little bit of new content, but that we're trying to, again, like zoom out a little bit and then, then get them to kind of apply that content in some and, and, and interpret it. So it's not just about what is a p-value, but it's like, okay, let's look at this study again. Now you've computed, you know, three estimates, three standard errors, three p-values. What is your takeaway about what this study means? What would you say to a policymaker based on this study? Uh, and those are open-ended questions that you can then also grade within within Gradescope. My understanding is that the students also do a, like a semester-long group project that's a little bit more open-ended. Uh, yeah. Is that working out for you? Yeah, so um, so th this is the, the, the core piece of the class as they experience, but those in-group, uh, those in-class assignments actually only add up to 15% of their grade. So 10% is the individual assignments, 5% is the group assignments. Um, I have a midterm and a final exam, um, which is mostly focused on the conceptual stuff. There's no coding as a part of that. It's just multiple choice conceptual questions. Um, but the other big piece of their grade is, yeah, the, this final project. And so um, this is uh, something that I that I really wanted to do, and I'm and I'm and I'm glad I did. Um, which essentially they are required um, over the course of the semester to first um, propose a a um, um, some idea for a final project where they could actually get data in the class. Um, most of them end up taking an option we give them where they can uh, write a survey and then have other people in the class fill out the survey. Um, but some people, I tell them they can also get real world data if they want. And so I think um, last fall, for example, um, there was a uh, um, there was a, a group that said something like, if you're wearing an anime t-shirt, are people more likely to uh, sign a petition that you ask them to sign, you know, outside of Cafe Strata, a cafe on campus? So, you know, silly stuff like this doesn't have to be about politics. Um, every semester I've taught this so far, there's been some like zeitgeist on campus. So like last semester, everyone wanted to do these surveys about People's Park, which is this park near Berkeley that the uh, campus is trying to turn into student housing and it's controversial for various reasons. Um, so uh, yeah, they, 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 the basic life cycle of the, of the project is they propose a project um, towards the beginning of class. The GSIs like vet the projects and decide which ones can are kind of okay and which ones are not. And so some of them we say like, yeah, let, let's not do that within this class. So for example, there was one student who um, wanted to ask people about kind of any experiences they had with um, sexual assault or sexual violence. And our thought was, okay, that's a great topic. It's important to research, but within the confines of this class, like we don't have the like the resources to be able to like do that correctly. And so like let's avoid that, not because it's not a good topic, but just because like within a class like this with all these projects that don't have a lot of oversight, like we don't we, we don't have the capacity to, to, to do that the right way. Um, so let's avoid that topic, for example. Um, so the GSIs vet the, the projects and then the groups get together. And so these groups are usually three or four students. They'll pick a project um, that... Uh, uh, they'll all do together. So if you were, say, if we were a group of three here on this podcast, then um, uh, maybe um, uh, one of our projects was disapproved, but two of our projects were approved. We get together as a group and say, which one do we want to do? We pick which project we want to do. Then we have to go build the survey, get the data. Um, then we each individually get the data set, have to clean it on our own and analyze it on our own as part of a, um, a report. They turn in a first draft report, 
individually, they all get feedback, and then they turn in a final draft, um, which is due a week from now during, at the end of our kind of, um, it's called our RRR week. It's like kind of exam prep week. I'd like to zoom back out again a little bit. You and I have some awesome work to do over the next couple of years. Uh, what, how are we going to get more political science professors on board? What's the key to sort of like building this out? So this is like an experience that yeah. students have, you know, like they come in PS3, they learn this flow. They, you know, all these skills are going to be applicable in like a range of operative classes. How do we get people to keep building this curriculum? Yeah, great question. So um, my, uh, we're still trying to figure it out as we go. I can tell you what our plan is. So, so yes, I think the ideal end state is a world where, you know, as students are sophomores, they're deciding they want to major in political science, they take PS3, then they come into their, you know, junior year. Um, with that knowledge, um, I'll say inter alia, one of the most amazing things has been that students come in with such low expectations of their own ability in terms of, of coding that so many students are like, wow, like I couldn't believe I could actually do this. Now, the coding we're teaching them is quite basic, but, you know, they, they really surprise themselves. And so we want to build on that momentum and say, OK, great. Now that you, you know, realize this isn't so scary, maybe you even had fun with it. Um, now you can take the next step and uh, take classes both outside of political science. So I actually just recorded a video that actually I have on my to-do list to send to you, Eric, for your feedback. I'm kind of going through classes they can take outside of, out of our major if they want to just continue with their data science training. Um, one thing in particular we're encouraging our more advanced students to consider is a minor in data science, actually. So that's something that they could do, um, which would be largely things they do outside of our department. But we want to take our students and say, kind of tell them, hey, you might have taken this major because you didn't like data. But now that you're doing it, you realize it's not so hard and it's kind of fun. Like, if you want to keep going, maybe minor in data science. Um, and then the other thing is, yes, within our major, um, we want there to be a menu of classes where they can say, hey, I want to take this class on migration where I'm going to keep, you know, doing what I'm learning or um, machine learning. I've heard that's cool. Like now that I know a little bit of R, like let's take a Professor Bansack's class. Um, so what I'm going to be working on over the next um, year or two is trying to work with the faculty in our department, many of whom are interested in this idea in the abstract to um, sort of um, either build new classes or convert their existing classes into we haven't really figured out what the brand is yet. Uh, provisionally, I'm just calling it data intensive classes. So as one example of this, I have a colleague, uh, Gabriel Lenz, who's been working on a big project about um, crime and democracy. And he teaches a class called Crime and Democracy, which is quite popular. Um, and he's expressed some interest in taking that class and converting it into a, a more, more data oriented class. And, and honestly, it's um, I think there's been a lot of faculty interest in this in part because it, it's a real win-win. Because I think a lot of faculty, you know, frankly, it's like... Political science is a very quantitatively focused discipline. You know, not not ever not all of it, but a lot of it. And so, for a lot of faculty, they feel like they're not able to fully teach students like everything that they need to because the students they worry you know are not kind of data literate enough. And so, the hope is to change that equilibrium where we can get students actually just more engaged and kind of better appreciating the actual material of political science because they're going to come in with a better appreciation of, oh, okay, I understand the statistics in this article. I can actually, instead of looking at these numbers and just taking the author's word for it, I can kind of engage it and say, well, do I believe this conclusion? Why might I, you know, not, et cetera. Or I can download a data set and test my own hypothesis. So there's just so much, there's just so many um, new avenues that, that open up for students to um, build on their own ideas, um, et cetera, that they've gotten a taste of in PS3 with the final project and with coding. 
um, that we want to we want to give them more of. And so just um, allowing them to express their creativity and ideas, I, I think really data is data is a kind of tool for that. And so um, that's that's I think in, in an ideal world where where we want to go. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for that that breakdown. I, I love that perspective you're giving of these new classes that you're trying to explore, um, especially with that crossover of poli sci and data science. But I wanted to ask like you specifically, if you were to, to develop and teach a new class within that crossover, like what, what's the ideal for you for the future? Oh, I know exactly what it would be. Um, uh, the class would be called um, Data Science for Political Campaigns. Um, my uh, collaborator, Josh Kalla, uh, at, uh, who's at Yale, teaches this class, and it is uh, super popular there. Uh, and so part of why I would teach it is I could borrow a lot of his course materials. Uh, but also, um, that's, that's, that's like my area. I do a lot of work studying political campaigns, using data that they share with me, et cetera. Uh, I know that world pretty well. I think a lot of our students want to go in that direction. And so if, if you know, that, that would be what's kind of closest to my research that would, that would use data. And so, um, I don't know, maybe in the future, I'll teach a class like that. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I hope you are able to teach that class. That sounds really interesting. And I wanted to transition a little bit to, to talking a bit more about your research, research experience. Um, so I want to ask, yeah. how have you utilized data science tools within your research experience? And how do you think that undergraduates um, specifically can contribute to research through these data science applications? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, just to, to, to say something about the last thing you said. So, so before I was here, I was at Stanford for four and a half years and um, I, was, I was in the business school there. Um, and I liked working there, but one of the things that attracted me about coming to Berkeley is that I was mostly teaching MBAs there who have no interest whatsoever in, in faculty research. Um, and, you know, nor should they, they, they have, you know, they're all going to go on to, um, get, you know, earn lots of money working for consulting companies or startup founding. And so, you know, they, they have no reason to like want to, you know, be a research assistant on a faculty project for the most part. Um, but at Berkeley, one of the things that really attracted me about coming to Berkeley is that I could, um, you know, attract more undergrads to come work with me on research um, and um, kind of build kind of a lab and that kind of thing. Um, COVID's made that a little challenging to get to get started. Um, but that's something I'm hoping to do in the next few years where I can, you know, take students that did well in PS3 or who I get to know through PS3 and try to um, get them get them all more involved in the in, in the research project and process, especially, you know, if they have some coding skills, right? Um, so uh, that's, I, I think, another sort of mission for the future is to try to figure out how to take this group of students that are uh, interested in, 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 in data and, and then have some skills and who I've gotten to know and then, and then integrate them more into my research portfolio, which I just hadn't really been able to do at Stanford, um, um, teaching MBA students and that, that, I, that I'd like to do here. Um, in terms of, uh, I, I, the, the first part of your question was about my, just my own research and how I've used data science. It's, 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 it's a lot of different, um, different ways. I mean, the, the, the most obvious is just the, you know, in, in any political, any paper that I write, there's some kind of data analysis. Again, usually it's relatively simple. We're not, especially for experiments, like we're not doing stuff that's like all that complex. Um, I think where I've used, I mean, it's data science in a broad interpretation. I, I will say, I think there's been a number of projects that I've done where I've just been shocked at like even just a little bit of coding knowledge can go like a long way. So, so I really don't want to overstate how sophisticated any of this is, but it's something that like my graduate students are like, oh my God, like, how did you do that? And I'm like, it's actually super simple. So, so I'll just give you one example. Um, I, I have a project with uh, my colleague, Professor Gabe Lenz, who, that I just mentioned, um, where um, there, there's this hypothesis in political science that um, dates back many decades that um, we know voters know very little about politics and yet 
Um, and, and so the question is how, if they don't know very much about what their politicians are doing, um, do they actually hold their politicians accountable for their politicians' actions? And one, one perspective is like, well, they don't. Um, and another perspective is, well, one way that they might be able to do this is that there's all of these interest groups out there that provide all these like cues or heuristics, we call them, um, that allow people to infer things about their politicians' actions um, without, uh, infer, make inferences about their politicians' actions without knowing all the details. So the thought would be, like, if you're a liberal and you hear that the Chamber of Commerce, which is a kind of conservative pro-business group, runs an ad or endorses your member of Congress, you say, I don't know what this member of Congress is doing, but I know that I don't agree with the Chamber of Commerce, and so I'm going to vote against my member of Congress. And so uh, Professor Lenz and I um, have a project where we basically argue that voters' ability to do this is actually quite overstated. Um, and in fact, there's kind of a perverse thing that goes on where um, voters, when they don't know the interest group, on average, just assume that the interest group agrees with them. So what would actually happen in that anecdote that I told you um, most typically is very few people would know what the Chamber of Commerce stands for. But some number of people would say, oh, like, that sounds good. Chamber of Commerce, like, they must support the same good stuff that I do. Um, and so they, they endorsed my member of Congress. Great. Like my member of Congress must be doing a good job. And so we show that the more likely to assume that um, uh, their member of Congress agrees with them on issues, more likely to say they'd vote to reelect them when they see this positive rating, um, even from a group that they disagree with. Um, and so we, we call this paper heuristic projection because people are basically acting as if they're projecting their own views onto interest groups. So, okay, what's the data science part? Um, a lot of the previous research in this area used completely fictitious interest groups and politicians. Uh, and so I was like, well, why don't we try to do a test where, you know, this in this case is not a field experiment, it's all survey based, but why don't we do a test where we actually test people's reaction to their real member of Congress and how their real member of Congress is rated by real interest groups. And so there's this nice um, uh, nonprofit called Project Vote Smart, which collates all of this information on um, how members of Congress have voted on real legislation. Um, it also has an API where you can take somebody's zip code and figure out who their member of Congress is. And it also has data on how members of Congress um, have been endorsed or not endorsed by various, uh, 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 endorsed or not endorsed by various um, interest groups. And so what we do in our studies is we get people's zip code and then we find out who their actual member of Congress is and we randomly assign and, and we, we get their own views on issues. And then we tell them about their member of Congress's actual ratings by actual interest groups. So it's like, you know, if we were here in, um, in Berkeley, our member of Congress is named Barbara Lee. So if you were taking the survey and you lived in Ber Berkeley, we'd say your member of Congress is Barbara Lee. And then we'd say, here is how Barbara Lee was rated by interest group. And we would give you an actual rating by an actual interest group. And then we would ask you, how do you think, okay, now that we've given you that information, how do you think Barbara Lee voted on like specific actual bills? And then we know how Barbara Lee actually voted. And so to program that, um, uh, to program the survey, I used the same software that um, almost all political scientists and social scientists use, which is Qualtrics. But Qualtrics has a way that you can hook into an API. And so I basically built a little like API backend that takes requests from Qualtrics and then pushes um, requests to Project Vote Smart, gets people's member of Congress and, and data and whatever, and then formats it in such a way we can pipe it back to my Qualtrics. So it's like I, I wrote this little like go between between Qualtrics and the Project Vote Smart API. Super simple, like a an undergrad that has taken like four weeks of our intro Python class here at Berkeley, like could program this. But just that little bit 
Like, like I, I don't know how you would do that if you didn't have a little bit of data science knowledge. Um, and so that to me is like an example of where super rudimentary, but just like a little bit of knowing the basics of kind of Python and processing data and scraping data um, can let you do, I think, like a lot and, and, and go beyond, you know, in our case, like previous research, which had always been these like hypothetical groups and hypothetical politicians in a way that like made me feel kind of much more confident in our conclusions. So that's just one example. But I feel like I have lots of examples like that where I feel like almost every paper I've written, there's some, yeah, really rudimentary, but just minor way in which just knowing a little bit of coding can, can be extremely helpful. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. I feel like that's a really great way to, to wrap things together. Um, and I'm sure our listeners are going to find a lot of value in that perspective. Um, but on that note, I, I wanted to ask the last question and just give you a chance to, to share any, any parting thoughts or words of wisdom for data science educators around the world. Anything you want to wrap up with? So I guess my advice would be, so I, I think I can only speak specific to the sort of students that, that I teach, you know, which are students who um, come in being, I mean, frankly, most of them, I, I think I did a survey before the first time I taught PS3 and I asked, um, uh, how like scared people are feeling, um, you know, or, or something like that. I forget the word that I used. And uh, out of the entire class, or it was how nervous, out of the entire class, there was exactly one student who said they did not feel nervous <laughs> about uh, about starting to do coding and, and, and stats and data science. Um, and I think in that population, um, you know, frankly, I, I got some pushback from some of our staff and some of my colleagues saying, like, I don't know, like, do you really think our students can do this? Like having that same sort of, um, you know, anxiety the students had. Um, I guess I would just say, um, you know, believe in your students. And, um, and, and if you believe in your students and, you know, nudge them and push them that um, they will kind of come to that confidence and believe in themselves. And, you know, not, not to editorialize too much, but, you know, I'll say I... I, I am a little, little bit concerned about um, this sort of, uh, uh, this, this is me almost putting my political science hat back on. Um, um, uh, I, I'm worried about a situation in our universities right now where faculty are afraid of students and afraid to challenge students because students will complain and um, you know, raise a stink and whatever. You know, it, it just as a small example of this, um, I had a GSI come to me and say, hey, um, you know, so, so as part of this final project, um, final project presentations are required. And, and the students and, and the GSI said to me, hey, I have a student who says they get anxious when they speak in front of people. Like, can we just exempt them from this assignment? I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, it's one thing if they have like a note from a doctor that this is truly a medical situation, that's one thing. But if it's just they said like, hey, this makes me nervous, like the whole point of college should be that you push people, not so far, but like a little bit out of their comfort zone. Um, and I think that um, we're in a moment right now where um, a lot of faculty are frankly scared about pushing um, students out of their comfort zone, um, be it, I mean, in terms of their political views, um, in terms of whatever. Um, and so I just think there's no way to be a good data science educator unless you're willing to do that a little bit. Um, and I would say, in fact, it's especially important to take the students who start off um, being afraid a little bit of data and coding because you know, once you push them and they say, God, this is a required class, I guess I have to do it. They start to realize, oh my gosh, like, I actually have these capabilities I didn't know that I had. And so I have all these students thanking me for saying, you know, I didn't, I, I really didn't want to do this. I was so afraid of it. But because you gave me that push, now I realize like I, what I'm actually capable of. Um, and I think, I think as educators, um, it can be uncomfortable to be the person giving students that push, but I think that really is our responsibility. Um, and, and, I, and I think we have to do it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all we have for you. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Dave.
Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you're interested in learning more about data science education resources, please subscribe to our Substack to get notified when we release any future podcasts. And join our community Slack channel through the link provided in this episode's description. Thank you.